0: Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer and give you the opportunity to use 1 John one nine if necessary. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that we have your word. We're grateful that you have revealed yourself to us, that you have told us who you are, and you have revealed to us who we are, what our basic problem is in terms of sin, and that you have provided the perfect solution through a substitutionary atonement as our Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross in payment for our sins as our substitute. Father, as... The living word has provided a perfect salvation. Through the written word, you have given us everything we need to know, everything that we need for life and godliness. And Father, we pray that as we study your word tonight, that we might be able to set aside the distractions, the cares, the worries, the things that dominate our thinking throughout the day, to put our focus, our attention on who you are and what you've done for us and that we might once again marvel at your word and at your complex plan that is yet so simple, but the way you have worked it out down through the years and all the intricacies and how everything just fits together. And Father, we commit this time to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We've been studying in Hebrews 9, and as you get into Hebrews 9, the backdrop for the whole chapter is the Uh, tabernacle service in the Old Testament. And unfortunately, many people today just don't teach the tabernacle. It was always one of my favorite subjects. When I was a kid, I always remember going to uh, good news clubs, Child Evangelism Fellowship with the flannel graph. Everybody remembers CEF because they're the flannel graph people. And having the backdrops and putting the uh, tabernacle up and teaching about all the different elements in the tabernacle. And it's a tremendous way... To teach kids about all the different facets of salvation and the need for salvation because it's, everything is a picture image of either the person or the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when I was first a pastor some, I don't know, 26 years ago, 27 years ago, down in Lamarck in Galveston County, one of the men that, our families who joined the church right after I went down there, just moved to the area, was the guy who was the, uh, Area Director for Child Evangelism Fellowship, and there is a Child Evangelism Fellowship Good News Camp down there in Hitchcock, Texas. And so he had me get on his board of directors and also had me come out during the summer to teach the kids the tabernacle. And that was really good for me as a young pastor to have to get into this material and start teaching it. And ever since then, I have just really enjoyed getting into all the different aspects of the tabernacle because of the pictures that are there, and we can learn so many different things about it. Now, last time, we looked at the reasons to study the tabernacle, and we began to get an overview of the tabernacle and to begin to come into the tabernacle as we would if we were going to come uh, to worship In the Scripture, it starts at the center with a description of what is inside the Holy of Holies and then works its way out. So we're sort of uh, coming at things a little backward. But if you try to teach the tabernacle verse by verse, you run into a lot of problems because you have God's initial overview in uh, Exodus 25 through about 29, 30 and get into the priesthood and then after that you get a description of them building all the different pieces and then comes back at the end and you get a third description so there's a lot of repetition as you move through the book of, book of Exodus and it gets a little bit redundant in terms of, of teaching so I try to synthesize it down so that we can come to understand it and uh, what I want to do tonight is to begin to, is to wrap up the outer curtains that surrounded the fence that surrounded the courtyard around the tabernacle and then move inside the entry into the courtyard and up to the first major piece of furniture, which is the uh, brazen altar. And you can see the model down here on the table in front of me, and we'll be spending some time talking about that. And as you can tell from this diagram, as we approach the tabernacle, we approach the outer perimeter, and you can't see what's going on inside. It is completely blocked from view because it is surrounded by the outer walls, and the dimensions of the outer walls are approximately 150 feet by 75 feet. It's 100 cubits, according to the text, 100 cubits by 50 cubits. Exodus chapter 27, verse 18 summarizes it. So if you want to open your Bibles, we'll spend most of our time in the 27th chapter of Exodus. And you have a section from verse 9, Exodus 27, 9, down through 19, which describes the outer courtyard, and, chapter, and verse 18 gives us a summary the length of the cord shall be 100 cubits and the width 50 throughout and the height five cubits of fine twisted uh, linen, linen. So the the uh, curtain, the wall around it was seven and a half feet high. The average height of a of an Israelite at that time was about five and a half feet tall. So uh, you were considered tall, exceptionally tall, if you were six feet tall. So with the height at seven and a half feet, nobody was looking inside. And so that kept the people from uh, seeing what was going on uh, on the inside, which is where the presence of God is. So you have the uh, a, a rectangle that is half as wide as it is long, approximately 150 feet on the north and south sides. And the way it's laid out, go back to our diagram here, the way it's laid out is the entry, which is down in this area. This is on the east side. So this is the west side behind the Holy of Holies. And then you have the north to the right and the south to the left. And the north and south sides were each uh, 150 feet approximately that's using an 18 inch cubit we'll just round it off there it could have been a little larger longer could have been a little shorter uh, we're not exactly sure there's a lot of debate as to uh, the length of of the standard cubit in Israel a lot of uh, different empires Egypt hit the Hittites the Babylonians had a royal cubit and a standard cubit and so we're there's a, some uncertainty there as to what the exact length was it was Technically, the length from the elbow to the end of the fingers, but that's going to vary depending on whether you're 6'4 or 5'4. So was not they didn't have a standard weight and measure like we do today. And on each of these long sides, there were 20 pillars, and each pillar had bronze sockets that the pil- pillar sat in, and then at the top there were silver hooks, and bands that would, that the curtains would hang on. And so the curtains, as we saw last time, the curtains were woven, uh, linen. A high grade of linen. There was, uh, a very expensive linen that came out of Egypt. And it was woven with three threads. And so they would weave these colors in. We don't know exactly what the pattern was, but it was designed to to stand out, and they were expensive colors and expensive dyes, some of the most expensive dyes in the ancient world, so only the uh, wealthiest of people would ever have clothing that was made out of these colors. Most people had rather uh, drab-looking clothes, and then when you look at the the fabric in the tabernacle and the clothing of the high priest, it would stand out. It was just magnificent. And in our world today, when we have so many vibrant colors and we live in a, in a world with so many different fabrics and so many different things, it's hard for us to, to imagine what that must have been like for them to come upon the tabernacle with all of this color. It sort of reminds me of what it was like back in the early nineties when I first went over to uh, Moscow, not long after things opened up and went to Belarus, and they would maybe one out of every four street lights would work, and if you were in the hotel, one out of every four lights in the hallway would be turned on, and everything was just this painted, you know, soviet drap concrete, and everything was in about three colors, gray and beige and dirty white. And that was it. And so after spending... Uh, three weeks in a culture where even at night when you're out on the street, only one out of every four streetlights is on where everything is dark and dim. And when you'd come back and land in, in someplace like Amsterdam or Frankfurt or London and you'd come out at night, it would just absolutely blow your mind. It was like moving from a black and white movie to a technicolor movie. And that's what it must have been like for people at this time to suddenly see all of these uh colors, these vibrant colors that would stand out. The first color that they used was was a bluish purple. There, In the text, sometimes it's translated blue, sometimes the translators will translate it purple, but it was a bluish purple, and it was symbolic of heaven as the true dwelling place of God and to remind people of the heavenly origin of the tabernacle. It was designed to draw people's attention to heaven. The second color that is used, On one more note on the blue color, both the blue purple and the reddish purple were produced from different species of mollusks and uh they would take these mollusks and and crush them to get the various secretions from the glands and it is from that that they would then create the dyes and it would take uh, enormous numbers of these uh mollusks in order to uh produce these dyes and that's why it was so it was rare and it was extremely expensive the second color that you have listed is the color purple, which was more of a reddish purple, which signified royalty. This was the color of royal robes. It was featured in the clothing of the high priest as well. It was uh, in the decorative features of the high priest garments, the pomegranates, and it was um, produced from the secretions of a sea snail, the murex trunculus, And it would take a total of 250,000 of these to make one ounce of the dye. And so it was extremely expensive and highly valued in Israel, and it was produced very early on, as early as uh, 1500 B.C. by the Phoenicians, Egyptians, and the Assyrians. And those the fishermen who gathered these mollusks, uh, had their own guild during the time of the Roman Empire, and these snails were harvested during the fall and the winter. During the spring was when they were uh, producing their uh, eggs, and during the summer they were hidden and uh, dormant. And so they inhabited the waters off of Crete and Phoenicia, and this produced what became known as Tyrian purple from this uh, Phoenician city, of Tyre and produced the, the purple dye industry for which they were uh, extremely famous. In fact, the name Phoenicia is derived from an etymological root of the uh, word that's the source of the dye, and the word Canaan is thought by some people to refer to the land of purple. So this was something that was uh, recognized in that particular area and was quite, quite valuable. It was used, as I stated earlier, for royal robes. So it spoke of royalty. So it, with these two different shades, you had an emphasis on heaven and an emphasis on royalty. Thinking about Israel and a the theocracy, this is the dwelling place of the heavenly king of Israel. And then the third color that is prominent in all of this, uh, all of the material is that of scarlet. You had actually two different words that are translated red. The first is the Hebrew word shani, which refers to a bright red uh, color with just a tinge of orange. And this is used to color various threads. It's used to color ribbons and a lot of uh, decorations. It was a dye that was extracted from the bodies of insects. And then there is a Second word that is usually translated, this one is usually translated scarlet and there's a second word that's usually translated crimson and that is from the word tola which refers to a worm as well as the dye that comes from the worm. They would crush the worm and then it was um, the color that came from the worm that w- was used to produce, uh, produce the dye and both of these words are used as i pointed out last time in Isaiah 1:18 come now let us reason together says the lord though your sins are like scarlet they shall be white as snow and both of these dyes were were considered permanent they just couldn't get it out so it pictures how thoroughly sin stains and affects somebody and so we have the statement though your sins are like scarlet they shall be white as snow though they are red like crimson They shall be as wool. So as the worshiper, as the Israelite would come to the temple, he would just be overwhelmed with the beauty and the color that was present there. And then the fabric itself was a fabric that was made from uh, extremely... I don't think I have a slide for it, I didn't put it up here. Uh, extremely fine linen, the linen from Egypt that was exquisitely woven. It was used in garments. It was used in the fabric and the clothing of only the uh, Pharaoh's family and the other aristocracy. And it was used in the clothing of the priests of Israel. So they were all in their formal Uh, where they were all dressed very well. It was interesting today, we were having a conversation with a couple of pastors about how our culture has so deteriorated, become so informal. Now everybody's going to cover up. Everybody has become so informal, and we were just reflecting on, one guy said, uh, uh, the other day I was channel surfing and ran across an old episode of Leave It to Beaver, and they're all sitting around the dinner table, and you know the father's got on his coat and tie to eat dinner. And that was just 50 years ago or 40 40 years ago. And now look at our culture when you can, you know, there's, you look at the common dress of a 19-year-old and he's probably never even tied a tie or even had a sport coat and dresses in the most, you know, horrid manner. And... I believe there's a connection that if you're informal in the way you present yourself, you're probably informal in the way you think, and especially if you think about values and anything, and that's just a sign of the deterioration of uh, of our culture and a lack of uh, recognition of formality and a lack of recognition of protocol. And we just moved away from that so much, and it, it creates a very slovenly attitude about morals, about any kind of absolutes about how to conduct things uh, in life, so the priesthood had a uniform they always wore it, it was exquisite, and it emphasized the fact that they were doing something that had the highest value, which is the worship of god. it wasn 't just uh, something else to do, but all of this was designed to bring glory to to God, who dwelt within. Uh, the tabernacle. Now, as you approach the tabernacle, you might start l- wandering around trying to figure out how in the world you're ever going to get inside and into the presence of God. And you could go around to the left and you could go around to the right. And there's only one way to enter in to the presence of God. There was only one entryway. And this entryway is described in Ezekiel chapter 27, I mean Exodus chapter 27 verses 17 and 18. All the pillars around the court shall be furnished with silver bands with their hooks of silver and their sockets of bronze. The length of the court shall be a hundred cubits and the width fifty throughout and, um, the height five cubits. And then in verse, I put verse 18 in there. It should have been verse 19, um, excuse me, verse 14 and 15. The hangings on one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three sockets. That was on one side of the of the eastern gate. And on the other side would be hangings of uh, 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three sockets. And then verse 16, for the gate of the court, there shall be a screen 20 cubits long, Woven of blue purple and scarlet thread and fine woven linen made by a weaver, it shall have four pillars and four sockets. so it was probably set off a little bit from the main design of the the main wall there. Let's go back to our diagram. And this area was probably set back just a little bit. We're not sure exactly how it worked, but there would there was a very wide entrance of 20 cubits, so it's 30 feet wide, which would allow for a large number of people to be able to come in. There's not a narrow entrance, but there's only one entrance. And of course, the fact that there's only uh, one entrance reinforces the exclusivity doctrine that we find in the scripture, that there's only one way to come to God. And what we see is that God always has only one way to come to him. And a couple of things that we need to be reminded of is that, first of all, that God has the right to tell man how he comes into God's presence. God has the right to tell people what the basis is and what the regulations are for coming into his presence. And what we find is many people who have this very low view of God and think that they're so great and wonderful that they can tell God how and under what conditions they're going to come into God's presence as if man is doing God a favor by worshiping him. And so man comes along and says, well, there are many, many different ways to God, and even if they're contradictory ways, uh, they all work because somehow man is so great and so wonderful that how could God possibly live without us? And what this reflects is that that man has developed a very low view of what God is. He, he's just a a man that's basically been uh, enlarged a little bit, but he's certainly not the God of the Bible. And yet when we come to the God of the Bible, we realize this presents a God who is totally distinct from anything in our frame of reference. He is unique. He's one of a kind. The Hebrew word is he's, he's holy. He's kadosh. He is completely separate from anything that we can ever possibly imagine and in order to come into his presence, we have to conform to his character, which is a character of of perfect righteousness. And so God sets the standards, but he provides the way so that despite our sin and despite our failures, we can come into his presence. We can come in and worship him and have fellowship with him, but he sets the standards. He decides what the what the protocol is. So the first principle is that God has the right to tell man the basis for coming into his uh, his, uh, coming into his presence. And the second thing that we note is that throughout the Bible, there is only one way of salvation, whatever the circumstances may be. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, There was only one way uh, to solve the problem of sin, this problem of their nakedness that was exposed after they fell, and that was through the sacrifice that God made when he made new clothing for them. And then when we move through the Old Testament, we go from the fall and then we come to the flood. There's only one way to survive the flood, and that is to be on the ark with Noah. Noah. And there's only one entry to the ark. And again and again, there's only one way to come into God's presence. We get into the tabernacle. There's only one way to get into the tabernacle. Once you're inside, there's only one way to come into God's presence. There's only one way to have fellowship with him, and that is on the basis of a substitutionary sacrifice, a blood sacrifice. And God spells out exactly what sacrifices are needed for what circumstances. And then when we get into the New Testament, Jesus, of course, says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says, I am the door. He uses all of these various illustrations to indicate that he is the only way to God, and either he's telling the truth or he's lying. There's there's no two ways about it. And if he is telling the truth, then he is the only way to God, and as God's son, he's the way to provide that way to God so he is the gate he is the doorway the entry into God so the single entry here is a type or a picture of the fact that Jesus is the only way to God so John 14:7 provides us with that with that backdrop now once you came up to the tabernacle and you came to the entry gate and you walked in the entry gate there wasn't a lot of things going on inside the courtyard. There may be other people there who had preceded you, but the main piece of furniture that you would see around which all of the activity transpired was the brazen altar. And the brazen altar was located uh, just inside the gate. We're not exactly sure how far it is. In this particular diagram, it's located up fairly close to the uh, holy place itself. In others, it may uh, be out a little more. But you would come up to the uh, brazen altar, and it was there that the sacrifices were taking place, and every morning and every evening there would be a burnt offering offered for the sins of the nation. But individuals who were coming into the presence of God before they could worship God, before they could serve God in the tabernacle, before they could uh, have fellowship with God. There had to be a sacrifice. So the sacrifices, the 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 primary foundational sacrifice that took place at the brazen altar was the burnt offering, and we'll get into that in just a minute. Well, in in Exodus chapter 27, the first eight verses. So you see, we're backing up a little bit. In Exodus chapter 27, verses 1 through 8, we have the description of the altar for the burnt offering. And there we read that uh, you shall make the altar of acacia wood five cubits long and five cubits wide. The altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits. So that would be approximately seven and a half feet square with a height of four and a half feet. You shall make its horns on its four corners, its horns shall be of one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make its pails for removing ashes, and its shovels, and its basins, and its forks, and its firepans. You shall make all of its utensils of bronze. And you shall make it for and make for it a grating of network of bronze, and on the net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. You shall put it beneath under the ledge of the altar so that the net will reach halfway up the altar. You shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. Its poles shall be inserted into the ring so that the poles shall be on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. You shall make it hollow with planks. Now, you can see the altar or the the, uh, brazen altar down in the front, and I'll go down and... Pick it up so those of you in the back can have a little better look at it. You can see that this model gives you a pretty good idea of what it looked like. It was built with acacia wood, which is a a wood that was extremely dense, and it was not prone to any kind of corruption or rotting. The wood uh, in all the construction always represents the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ and it was without corruption, so that during his life he was without sin, and then even when he is in the grave, his body did not undergo decay or corruption because he was raised from the dead on the third day. And so the altar itself is built. It has four horns, on each one on each corner, representing the four corners of the earth, that ultimately the sacrifice that would be provided would be a sacrifice that would provide salvation for all of the earth. The horns also represent power, indicating the uh, uh, power of the sacrifice to atone for sin. The third use for the horns would be to tie down the sacrifice to uh, hold it in place in the same way that the Lord Jesus Christ is nailed to the cross. Inside, there is a grate. I can pull it out, And this would, on the inside, you would have the fire, the coals underneath, and then you would have a grate. It's a grate, not a grill. For those of you who like to barbecue, it's not a grill. And you would put this the uh, Sacrifices on the on the grate, if I can get it put it back together. here we go, and then there was a ring on each corner for the carrying poles, each of which was made of acacia wood and then overlaid with uh, with bronze. Now, the reason it's overlaid with bronze is so that it can withstand. The heat, the heat represents judgment. And so we have the picture of the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ with the acacia wood and the word, word there in the Hebrew is shatim. It was shatim wood, which was an uh, incorruptible, indestructible wood that grew out in the Sinai desert. They would then cover that with the uh, bronze, which Pictures the fact that Jesus Christ was able to withstand the judgment that God poured out upon him for our sin and therefore he was able to uh, pay the penalty for our sin as our substitute. He was able to withstand the fire of God's punishment. The, uh, when the sacrifice was made and the lamb they would take the nice little lamb. They would take the lamb. And where I got this idea was the first time we went to Israel two years ago. There is a place outside of the Temple Mount as you're approaching, those of you who remember this. And we went downstairs, and it's sort of a, a museum-type setting, display with a lot of timelines and chronology. And you go down inside, and there's a little room where you watch about a ten-minute film. And the function of this film is to show what it was like for some, someone who was a, uh, Jewish male living away from Jerusalem who would make his annual pilgrimage to come down to Jerusalem and what it was like, what it would have looked like to, for him to come into Jerusalem, see the magnificence of the Herodian temple, and then go to the money changers and get the kind of money he needed to buy the sacrifice and then to buy the lamb. And so you see this guy dressed up, of course, in a first century costume, and he comes up and he buys this lamb. And it is just the cutest lamb. Just picture the expression on your favorite pet looking into those eyes, and that's what it was like. I mean, this lamb just, just looks at you, these big brown eyes. And you just want to take it home and cuddle with it. It just looks, and he takes this lamb, and it just really hit me how this lamb is completely innocent. It's never done anything to hurt anybody. It's never done anything wrong. It's it's just this sweet, gentle lamb, and he's taking that lamb into the uh, temple, And that lamb is going to be taken up to the altar and there the priest is going to slit its throat and it is going to die. And that is the picture of the Lord Jesus Christ who is like that lamb, completely innocent, not guilty of any sin, totally righteous. And yet he is the one who is going to suffer and die uh, as our substitute. So the, after they would slit the throat of the lamb, they would then, then take the blood and they would uh, sp- uh, sp- splash the blood up against the side of the altar. So the altar would uh, show all of this blood that had dried on the sides of the altar from all of the sacrifices and this is a picture of course of the fact that Jesus Christ it was a certain kind of death that he had to undergo he just couldn't have a heart attack and die for our sins they couldn't strangle him they couldn't uh take him out and lynch him they couldn't shoot him or decapitate him it had to be a certain kind of death to fulfill prophecy and it had to be a penal death a punishment because it's de- it's depicting his punishment in our place uh, for our sins. And so, uh, as you look at the altar, the brazen altar itself, you see this picture of the, uh, the substitution of Christ. Now, in the third verse, it talks about the things that went along with the altar. You had these various other instruments, you had pans. And uh, shovels. You had uh, pails for removing its ashes, and shovels. You had basins and forks and fire pans. So you have uh, four different things there, and all of these utensils would be made of bronze because the bronze would withstand the the fire. And the, the judgment. And each of these indicates something. Every element, as far as we can tell, seemed to have. Uh, some sort of typological uh, meaning. Now, what is typology? Let me make sure you understand that. Typology simply means that there's elements of something that's designed to picture or foreshadow some elements about the person of Christ or some event. And it's, it's prophecy through symbol. And a lot of times you don't know can't see exactly how the symbolism works until you see the fulfillment. And then once you see the fulfillment, then it becomes clear what these different elements prophesy. You can understand certain things, but there might be some other details uh, that would get by you. The pans and shovels were used to remove the ashes of the sacrifices and carry them outside of the camp to be disposed of in a clean Place and so there was a, a, a sense of honor and respect for those ashes. They weren't just taken anywhere and dumped. There was a special place, a clean place that conformed to the ritual, where they would dispose of those ashes. And it is a depiction of the fact that Jesus would be buried in a special place. The ashes themselves, because the especially with a burnt offering. Where everything was consumed, the ashes spoke of the finished work of Christ, that it was a complete payment for sin, as we see in John nineteen thirty, when Jesus said, To die it is finished. Uh, the blood from the sacrifices was drained into the basins. And then it's poured out at the base of the altar, which is a picture of the fact that Jesus poured out his life in judgment. The, the blood represents life. The life it was, it depicts the fact that Jesus in his, uh, uh, as he's hanging on the cross, bears the penalty of our sin spiritually. He is judged for our sin. So the pouring out of the blood is a picture of that, and we'll see the significance of that Uh, Is developed in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 12 through 15. The flesh hooks that were inside of the uh, altar represented the cruelty and the pain of the death that the Lord Jesus Christ suffered as he went through all of the whippings and scourgings and beatings, everything leading up to the cross, He did not utter a word as a lamb before its shears is dumb, so he uttered not a word. And then only when our sin was put on him did he scream out in agony. The reason for that is to draw the contrast between the fact that no matter how horrible the torture was, and most of us would have passed out long before he, he ever did, no matter how horrible the physical torment was, He never even moaned or whimpered. And it wasn't until sin hit him that he screamed out. And it's to depict the fact that how horrible sin is and the judgment for sin, that not even the uh, flagellation from the Roman soldiers could make him whimper, but our sin made him scream. So the flesh hooks depict the cruelty of the death, that he suffered on the cross and the pain of bearing our sin. The fire pans, uh, these were used to carry the fire, the coals from the brazen altar into the holy place to the altar of incense, and that represents the intercessory ministry of Christ, his prayers going up before us as a result of his being a qualified sacrifice because of and that's the argument that we've seen in Hebrews chapter 7 and 8 because he he went to the cross and he died for us he's then elevated to the position of being our high priest where he is our intercessor today so this gives you an idea of all the different elements going into the brazen altar then the second thing we should note when we look at the brazen altar is the meaning of these words altar and sacrifice altar, and sacrifice. The word for altar is the Hebrew word mezbiach. Mizbiach is formed on the root verb zavah, the Z-B-H. It's a soft B, so it's pronounced like a V. The Z-V-H, zavah, is the word for slaughter or sacrifice. So the place of the slaughter, the sacrifice, is the Mizbiah And the word altar is used over 400 times in the Old Testament, and it has to do with a place where an offering or sacrifice is made to a deity. The very first use that we have of the word altar is in Genesis chapter 8, verse 20, when Noah and his family get off of the ark and they construct an altar, and there they offer sacrifices to God. But that's not the first place that we actually have an altar, even though it's not mentioned. There's clearly the implication that there is an altar built by uh, Cain and Abel. There's uh, an altar probably built before that. So if we're going to trace, before we can understand the significance of a sacrifice and what's going on with, with, with the events in, in Exodus, We have to understand the context of sacrifice. It didn't begin with the tabernacle. It fits within the flow and the progress of revelation. So the first place that we see the idea of a sacrifice is in Genesis chapter 3. After Adam and Eve have eaten from the fruit of the tree the knowledge of good and evil, and God has come and and, um, uh, smoked them out of hiding where they've tried to cover up their nakedness with fig leaves, And they come out and he outlines the consequences of their sin in terms of what is normally referred to as the curse in Genesis chapter three, verses thirteen down through uh, seventeen uh down through nineteen, then after that uh, in verse twenty one we read also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. What's interesting is the word for clothing here is just a general, uh, non-technical word to put on clothes, and it's used in many, many contexts throughout Scripture as simply meaning to put on clothes. But it's used here, I think, in a rather significant manner because they have tried to cover up uh, their nakedness, which is a sign of the vulnerability, the death, the penalty from sin that they've experienced, and they've tried to cover it themselves with the clothes of fig leaves, and it doesn't work, and so now God is going to cover them with animal skins, and it, it pictures God's provision for us. And the same word labosh is used in the context of Zechariah chapter 3, where you have the picture of. Uh, It's a heavenly scene where you have Joshua the high priest in dirty clothes picturing his sin. Satan is accusing him, and then uh, God provides a white robe and white tunic and white turban for Joshua the high priest, which is a picture of putting on uh, imputed righteousness. It's a picture of justification, and so as he clothes himself with those white robes, it's that picture of justification. So that's what I think we have in Genesis chapter 3. And I was looking at a commentary by Al Ross, who was uh, one of my Hebrew professors at Dallas Seminary, and Al was just always uh, just tremendous insights at not only his THD uh, from Dallas, but a PhD from uh, Cambridge. And he was, most of the time, most of the students were just kind of had their heads spinning listening to him. But he writes concerning this particular verse that in in this incident in Genesis uh, 3, that the text offers no explanation of how this was done. See, it just makes this statement that the Lord made tunics of, of, of skins and clothed them. And you have to stop and think about what's involved in that process. He goes on to say, however, with such a startling resolution to the problem of sin, because that's the conflict that you have in Genesis 3, one must conclude that it was designed to reveal the price of disobedience and that only when the price was paid could anyone have the prospect of continuing life. Now, the reason I bring this out is because as we get into the second incident of sacrifice, in the Old Testament, which is the, the situation with Cain and Abel, there's a lot of debate and discussion uh, among biblical commentaries as to just what's going on there. Why does God approve uh, Abel's sacrifice and not accept Cain's sacrifice? And I think to understand what happens in Genesis 4, you have to understand what's going on in Genesis chapter, chapter 3. And that in the process of making these tunics, God would have had to instruct them on a lot of things that aren't present in the text that we're just not told about. If you're going to take leather, take the skins of animals and produce clothing, then you have to treat the leather. You can't just skin the animal and put it on because... in In about a day, that's going to harden up and become brittle, and you're not, it's not going to be very comfortable to wear. So there has to be a whole process here where God was teaching about the anatomy of the, uh, of of the sheep, probably a lamb. He had to explain the anatomy. He had to explain how to go about the process of sacrifice. He had to show how to skin the animal. He had to show how to treat the leather so that it would be soft and supple, how to cut it, how to do all of those things. And so that would be part of the instruction. But beyond that, there's a clear indication from what we see later on in Scripture that this kind of sacrifice and the shedding of blood is important to deal with the penalty of sin. And everywhere else that we go in Genesis where there is, Uh, Anything like this, it's related to a sacrifice. So as we look at that event, it would seem a very logical deduction from the text that this is when God instructed Adam and Eve on the proper way to to come into his presence through the shedding of blood and an animal sacrifice. Because when we come to chapter 4, which is the second incident of sacrifice in the Old Testament, and we have this situation with Cain and Abel, it's pretty obvious that they already know, but we're not told how they found out, that they are supposed to bring an offering to God. And the word here is not the word that we have for sacrifice. It's another word that we find in the uh, especially in Leviticus, it's a mincha, which is a gift or an offering. It's also used for the word present or a tribute. If you give somebody a Christmas present, you'd use the word mincha. Mincha, if you use uh, give them a uh, birthday present, you'd use the word mincha. So it's, it's a tribute, an offering, a present, something like that. So you're bringing something to offer God. It's a word used over 211 times in the Old Testament, so it has a very... Uh, important significance there's a difference between offerings and sacrifices but in some passages they're virtually they're virtually synonymous now what happens with Cain and Abel is that we read in verse 3 in the process of time it came to pass and that could be 10 or 20 30 years before Cain and Abel uh, grew up we don't know how much time went by whether they're still young or whether they have uh, matured a little more, so in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected this is the New King James. The Lord respected Abel and his offering, but He did not respect Cain and his offering, and Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Now there's a lot of discussion, as I said, about why God accepts one and doesn't accept the other. Now we get some insight from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. Well, why is it a better sacrifice? I think it's important that it doesn't say, uh, by faith, Abel had a better attitude in his offering than Cain. See that's what some people will say as well. See, you have grain offerings later on in the Mosaic Law, where they bring the fruit, first fruits and the fruit of the ground, and that's also called the Mincha. Of course, that's some, um, you know, fifteen hundred, two thousand years later, and you're taking later revelation under the Mosaic Law and you're reading it back into something much earlier. When you look at the Book of Genesis you have and only animal sacrifices. You have animal sacrifices with Noah. You have animal sacrifices with Abraham. You have animal sacrifices with Isaac. You have animal sacrifices with Jacob. All the way through Genesis, you have no reference. Of course, this is the only place menchah is used, by the way. But you have no evidence of any kind of grain uh, or first fruit offering until you get to the Mosaic law. So, the context of Genesis seems to suggest that the only sacrifice they knew of was that of a of a blood sacrifice so cain uh, Abel offers to God a better sacrifice. The text indicates that it's the sacrifice itself that's better, not the attitude of the one bringing it and it was through which that is through the sacrifice which he obtained. The testimony that he was righteous. That is, God would be declaring him righteous on the basis of the atoning sacrifice. A God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. This is his evidence. Then you have another interesting passage in the New Testament, Jude chapter, or Jude verse 11. Woe to them. It's talking about these false teachers. That's the background, the context of Jude 11. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, for they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam, and they have perished in the rebellion of Korah. Three things. But these three different incidences that come out of the Old Testament are being used by the, by, by Jude to indicate the same basic sin. Each one was a little different, but what we're looking at here is what did each of these have in common? Now, Balaam was the one who tried to curse Israel, and he couldn't curse Israel because God prohibited him. He's also the one that has the talking ass, if you remember that story, where he is uh, trying to uh, uh, go against God, and the, there's an angel standing in the way, and the his uh, donkey uh, sees the angel and uh keeps shying away, and so Balaam starts to abuse his uh donkey and order because he doesn 't see the angel, and then the donkey talks to him, so he 's the uh, prophet with the talking ass, or some might say the prophet who is the talking ass, but he um this was his error. He's trying to def- redefine God's terms and how you and whatever God had instructed him. He's trying to get around it and define it on his own terms. And that's the same thing with the rebellion of Kor. This was a re- rebellion against the the, priest, the the priesthood that God had established through um, through Aaron. And so what each of these have in common is men who try to redefine the basis of having a relationship with God. And so uh, that's what Cain is doing. He's trying to say, okay, I'm going to come to God on my own terms, and I'm going to bring him the kind of sacrifice that I think is valuable. And that's exactly what so many people today try to do, is they try to define what worship is on their own terms and how to have a relationship with God on their own terms. And God says that no, you have to follow His way. And so, in Genesis 4-4, we have this phraseology that the, uh, New American Standard translates it, the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. And it's a, it, really it's an idiom here. It's a sort of an anthro, uh, Pomorphic idiom. It says, God looked with favor upon at the sacrifice. And so this is an idiom for the fact that God accepted Abel and his offering, but he rejected uh, Cain and his offering, because Cain did not come to God on the basis of a blood sacrifice. Now, this is when we get into our evening lesson for discernment. And the reason I bring this up is because if you have certain study Bibles, and I, I haven't looked at different study Bibles, so I don't know which one has what view, but um, you'll have different study Bibles, and you'll read in your notes on Genesis 4 that it wasn't a problem with a different sacrifice. It was that Cain came with, he was just going through the motions he was just going through the outer form of the sacrifice. He really didn't uh, have a heart for God, and this is why God rejects his sacrifice. And I think that's um, uh, you have a problem with that because of Hebrews 11, uh, Hebrews 11. But this is what the Nelson's New Illustrated Bible Dictionary says, and I'm quoting this because this is your application of discernment for the evening. Because you'll read things like this. You'll look something up in a Bible dictionary or you'll read something in some commentary and you'll see this kind of stuff. Uh, And this is what this writer says. Uh, It's a serious mistake to affirm that Abel's sacrifice was acceptable to God because it was an animal sacrifice and that Cain's sacrifice was unacceptable because he did not bring an animal. Genesis 4 makes no mention of offerings for the atonement of sin. And therefore, to insist that the blood of an animal is mandatory here is to read more into the account than is warranted. Attitude on the part of the offerer, not the nature of the offering, is in the forefront of the author's concern in Genesis 4. See, this is, there's, I'm telling you, there's a huge amount of discussion over this, and the majority of scholars will come along and say, well, you see, there's no overt instruction on sacrifice, so you can't say, that Cain brought the wrong sacrifice, but if you stop and really think about the flow of what's going on in the text, there is that indication that's there, and there's no indication anywhere in the book of Genesis that there is a value to a to a blood uh, to a bloodless or to a, a grain sacrifice. Now, as we continue to work our way through Genesis and just think our way through Genesis, we come then to the patriarchs. And with the patriarchs, we have um, Abraham, who sets up an altar at Shechem in Genesis 12:7, 7. And he sets up an, another altar between Bethel and Ai as he uh, moves south through the land there as he first explores the land in Genesis 12. And then as he heads into the south... He builds another altar in Hebron in Genesis 13:18, And then later he builds an altar on Moriah when he takes Isaac up on Moriah uh, to sacrifice him. Uh, Isaac at Beersheba builds an altar there. And then Jacob at Bethel uh, will build another al- altar and rebuild the altar of Abraham at Shechem and the pattern of teaching that we see here is the doctrine of substitutionary atonement all the way through this we see the importance of this doctrine of substitutionary atonement so three points in conclusion here number 1 the foundational sacrifice that we see going through All this material in the uh, early part of the Old Testament is a sacrifice that's based on substitution, that the animal bears the judgment for the individual. He stands in the place of the individual, and by placing your hand on that little lamb, there is a transfer of my guilt to the lamb, and then the lamb is killed for uh, the sin, for the guilt of the sin. So the foundational idea is that of substitution. Second point, the second and subsequent emphasis that grows out of the first is that of thanksgiving. When Noah gets off the ark and he and his family offer sacrifices to God, it's not for atonement to have a relationship with God, but it is to express their thanksgiving to God for having preserved and delivered them through the judgment. So the second emphasis that we see on sacrifices in Genesis is that of thanksgiving. And then the third element that we see in sacrifices is that when you give a sacrifice, you're giving up something. And so there is this implicit recognition of our dependence upon God. That by giving to God, we're recognizing that we are dependent upon Him to provide for us. So sacrifices have that, that idea of dependence upon God to sustain us. Now, when we look at the brazen altar, there were various types of sacrifices that were altered, that were offered on the brazen altar. And we'll come back and begin that with a look at the different sacrifices and offerings that are described in Leviticus uh, next time. We'll start with Leviticus 1 and start looking at this whole thing of the burnt offering, then Leviticus 2, we have the grain offering, then later we have the peace offering, the thank offerings. And how do those relate to the work of Christ on the cross? What do each of these depict and why are, there, why are they significant, and we'll begin that uh, next Thursday night. Let's bow our heads and in closing prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at these things, to come to an understanding of sacrifice and to have our attention drawn, not to just the uh, historical acts of sacrifice in the Old Testament, but what they depicted, and that is the substitutionary payment for our sin by our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, that there he died. As our substitute, he paid our penalty, and he took our place on the cross, and that by trusting in him, we have eternal life. Father, we pray that as we think about these things, that you would give us a greater appreciation for all that you have done for us, all that you've provided for us, and that we might truly be willing to serve you in every area of our life, beginning with the highest priority of studying your word and learning to think biblically, learning to think according to your thinking. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.